Have you ever asked the question, God, what in the world are you doing? You don't have to be a Christian for very long to have that question make its way into your mind. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's an unforeseen financial crisis. Maybe it's the loss of a family member or a friend or a debilitating health condition, some unforeseen circumstance. Or maybe it's just when your idea of God's plans for your life don't match the actual course of your life. The question, what are you doing, Lord, is on Habakkuk's lips throughout the book that shares his name. He's confused about the state of affairs in his life and his community, and he can't make any sense of it. So he brings his complaint to God. And over the course of their conversation, the prophet grows in his understanding of God's character and of God's plan. So he's on a journey of faith. It's a journey that starts with faith, grows over time in faith, and ends in faith. It's a journey from faith to faith. We're only going to look at the first exchange tonight between God and Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk and God, plus one verse for the sake of context. Uh, Lord willing, we'll look at the next section later this summer. But as the book develops, God is teaching Habakkuk that the wicked may go on in their wickedness for a season, but in his perfect timing, God will enact just judgments on them. This state of affairs that Habakkuk observes in these verses will not stay that way forever. And from our vantage point on this side of Christ, we can look back on the story of Scripture and Habakkuk's place within it and say with the Apostle Paul when he says that in the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith, as it is written in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Our passage unfolds in two main sections. First, Habakkuk brings his holy complaint to God, and then God reveals his shocking plan, and we'll see that plan unfold in two stages. Uh, We'll see briefly at the end, in verse 12, that Habakkuk responds with growing faith as well. He grows and then brings more questions to God. It's an ongoing dialogue. But first, we want to look at Habakkuk's holy complaint. We know very little about the prophet Habakkuk. His name is mentioned only in this book in verse 1 and then again in chapter 3, verse 1. Jerome and Luther thought that the name came from a root meaning to embrace. Some more modern scholars think that it's an Akkadian word that means a plant. I'll let you decide which of those sounds better for the prophet. Uh, It doesn't really matter. What we do know about him, though, is that he was deeply troubled by the situation of his day. He had been crying to God for help, verse 2, about the destruction and violence around him, verse 3. And we also know that the sin that he's describing is not among the nations outside of Israel. It's about God's people within Israel and within Judah, more specifically. Because he says in verse 4 that the law is, in his eyes, paralyzed, the Torah. This is about the covenant people and community of God. And he's confused that God isn't acting, this state of affairs doesn't seem tenable given God's justice, God's holiness, and God's righteousness. He knows that God is without a trace of darkness. This is an ongoing conversation between Habakkuk and God. He's been praying for some time now as he says, how long, Lord, must I cry to you continually? He knows these things about God. And he continues and asks, 
why, from his perspective, those things just don't seem to be the reality in the world around him. So the passage then is universal in its scope and its applicability. Because, as I said, and as we all know, every believer at one point or another in their Christian life asks, How long, Lord? Why do the wicked prosper? Habakkuk's prayerful dialogue with God teaches us many lessons about how to bring our confusion to God, how to ask the right questions about our trials and challenges that we face, and what God is doing when we're least aware of what's going on in our lives. We ask this question in a lot of different ways. In the workplace, you might ask it if you have a coworker or a boss who dodges company requirements or doesn't play by the rules, who misrepresents their work and their output, uh, speaks poorly of others behind their backs, and yet they grow in the company. And your work, as you try to abide by God's law and the company rules, doesn't prosper as much. And you ask, why, Lord? Why is this happening? Why do the wicked prosper? We might ask it in different ways, in the home or in specific situations when tragedy strikes. But Habakkuk here uh, isn't primarily concerned or even essentially concerned about either harm to his person or about injustice committed against him. It's not a a concern focused on himself, but it's a holy concern that has its source in the holy God. These are concerns that don't come from sinful man. We don't ask these questions without the Holy Spirit of God working in our hearts. He's asking, why do you make me see iniquity? Or why do you make me look at wrong? He, he doesn't want iniquity and wrong to be prospering and occurring among God's people, period. Not just to him, but the state of affairs bothers him. The law is paralyzed, he says in verse 3, 4 rather. It's not a set of personal grievances, but a state of perplexing affairs, given Habakkuk's knowledge of God. And as I said, he's been crying out to God about this for some time now. In New Testament language, we might say that he's praying without ceasing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, bringing his requests to God. His cry is similar to Asaph's in Psalm 77, where he says, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out. Without wearying, my soul refuses to be comforted. Has your soul ever refused to be comforted? We've all had those times when we bring these requests to God and we just don't know how to voice them and can't understand where they're coming from. So there's a lesson then in the fact that Habakkuk prays it all. How many times do we grow weary in prayer? I know I can. We know that the Lord's ways are higher than our ways and that his answer won't always change our circumstances the way we expect to, but we don't always go to him with those concerns. That's the first thing that Habakkuk does is brings these concerns to God, though he doesn't know how they will be resolved. The questions that Habakkuk's asking may seem at first to accuse God of wrong. He says in verse 2, How long will I cry violence and you will not save? Is he saying that God won't save? Well, if he were accusing God to his face, God, you will not save, certainly that would be a sin of unbelief. But he brings this complaint to God in a way that believes God is just, believes God is powerful to save, and doesn't understand why injustice is continuing. He, as we said earlier, brings the complaint to God in faith. This is a journey of faith beginning 
in the middle and end, a journey of faith. Laments, properly brought to God, voice our burdens to him, but remain trusting in his power and his faithfulness. The answer to the question of why do the wicked prosper and the righteous perish in Habakkuk's day that God walks him through over the course of this book is the same as it is in our day. It begins by saying, wait and see their end. As Asaph writes in Psalm 73, verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your wonderful works. And the saints, later on at the very end of scripture, complete the same request. It's a request common to the saints of all the ages. In Revelation, we read the same thing when the saints cry out, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, there's that holiness again. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer is that they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Just a little longer were called to wait on the Lord. Now with that The complaint that Habakkuk brings, what was the source of that complaint? We said that it's universal in scope, but there was a particular situation that this arose from. It's not dwelled on much in the passage, but it's there. What was it? To answer that, we need to know the events that led up to this time of his prayer. And it would not have appeared from that situation in history that there were a lot of reasons, uh, it would appear rather, that there were a lot of reasons to be confused of what God was doing. Because Habakkuk prophesied in the 7th century B.C., after, after the fall of Samaria in 721, the northern kingdom of Israel, but before the fall of Jerusalem in 586. This is a time when God is raising up the Chaldeans, as Habakkuk says in verse 6, or God, as God says. That is the Babylonians. It's before, however, they had become a world power, which they were soon to do. They're powerful enough to be known by Habakkuk's audience, but not yet in control of this region of the world. And the Lord describes at length how fierce and wicked they are. They are men whose justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That is, it leaves them, and they are left without justice and dignity. Uh, F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, the Chaldeans reckon themselves incomparable. They set their own standards of justice, regardless of the opinions of others. Just decades earlier, however, before this growing problem, Judah had been ruled by the good king Josiah. Josiah had begun moral reforms early in his reign. And on top of that, he discovered the long-lost book of the law. He discovered what was probably some form of the book of Deuteronomy. And having found that, he brought all the people of Judah to, to the temple from the small to the great, all of them, and read to them the whole book of the law. We read in 2 Kings 23. The whole book of the law was read, and the people were brought onto the same page to know what God had done for them and what he expected of them. The saving acts and righteous rules of God had been reintroduced into the community of God. This was a great day in Israel's history. But not long after this mini-reformation, 
Judah fell back into sin, as the history of God's people has often been up to this point. Shalom, Josiah's son, might have continued in Josiah's righteous rule, but instead the king of Egypt deposed Shalom, brought him into captivity, and set his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. Bruce again summarizes that Jehoiakim inherited none of his father's qualities. He exploited his subjects for his own aggrandizement, and he had no concern for justice or mercy. It's out of this historical situation that the dialogue between Habakkuk and God emerged. And this leads us back to where we and where the prophet started. Doesn't God see what's going on? Doesn't he know that his people are breaking the covenant that he had made with them? Why doesn't he change the situation? Why doesn't he bring renewal? Why doesn't he change his people's hearts and make them follow the law? That's the question that Habakkuk faces, and that is his complaint, and he brings it to God. He brings his requests because he trusts that God is the one who will answer. And when God does respond to Habakkuk, he doesn't tell Habakkuk that his questions were foolish or that they were sinful. He doesn't rebuke him because they weren't foolish and that they were based on truth. But it was incomplete truth. They arose from recognizing God's holiness and his willingness to save, his justice and his mercy, but they didn't account for God's hidden providence or his divine timetable. And they weren't sinful, they didn't accuse God of wrong, but they trusted that God is willing and able to save. And and that is what creates the problem. Faith causes this question. Faith says, God, you are able to save, you are faithful to me, you've made promises, why aren't you acting? So the right response is to bring them to God. Throughout the book, as we've said, God answers the prophet's questions progressively. And a a full climax to the answer will come in chapter 2, where we get the verse quoted thrice in the New Testament that the righteous will live by faith. The initial response, though, is that of a shock and of a jarring, raw revelation of God's plan, what he's about to do in history. It's as if God needs to jolt Habakkuk out of his own little world, pull back the curtain of his providence and his plan, and say there's more going on in these circumstances than meets the eye. God gives Habakkuk this shock, and in verses 5 to 11, he reveals his shocking plan to the prophet. And let's consider that plan. God's response to Habakkuk's questions is that he's raising up a wicked nation to conquer Jerusalem, take Judah captive, and take God's people from their promised inheritance. He was going to remove them from the land that he had promised to Abraham, that he had given to Israel under Joshua and that he had made them to prosper in under Solomon. He was going to remove them from that. Now, losing one's homeland is a tragedy in any situation. Uh, To be forced from one's home, that place of belonging, family, place of memory and security, is to be separated from things very near to our heart and even to our identity. Uh, Bruce Waltke writes that the prominence of land in biblical theology arises from the deep and moving yearning in the human spirit to have a home, to be in a safe place. But land in the Old Testament carries much more significance than even those notions of home. It's the fourth most used word in the Old Testament, land is, and it's deeply significant theologically. Waltke continues and says, In biblical theology, the ideal land is the place where I am, chooses to be uniquely present to provide for and protect his people. So Judah's exile 
was removal from the special place where God had promised to dwell with them. And their joyful worship, found in so many of the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, where they're arising to go to the house of the Lord, that joy and that praise is turned into the morning of Psalm 137, where the psalmist writes, By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The prophet Jeremiah says even more about the significance of Judah losing the land. Stephen Dempster writes, If if Israel's gift of the land represents recreation, then their removal from their land is a kind of decreation. And he's talking about Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah 4.23, Jeremiah describes the removal of Israel from the land in terms of Genesis 1. He says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. All of this was to be God's judgment on the iniquity, in Habakkuk's words, the iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, and contention that Habakkuk observed. So for Habakkuk, this is very important news that God is not looking on this and turning his face away. He sees and he's planning to make the situation right. Behold, I am raising up the Babylonians. I'm raising up judgment. I will not allow evil to indefinitely continue in the land. God saw it, and he saw it with an infinite eye. He saw even more than Habakkuk saw. Habakkuk is seeing God's people, and he's saying, Lord, don't you see among your own people this injustice is reigning? And God says, yes, look at the nations. I'm causing something to come forth that you wouldn't believe, even if you were told it. You may have heard that verse quoted in a very positive light before. Here it's judgment that God is pronouncing. He's bringing forth the Babylonians to rectify this unjust situation among his people. And God's doing it by controlling the nations and by enacting his will over more than just his people. He's going to rectify this injustice. So the Lord's sovereign plan was perfectly designed to carry out just judgments on Israel, but it was also designed to fulfill his promise of salvation through Abraham to bless all the nations through him. We have to see Both of those things, they unfold more throughout the whole book. But suffice it for now to see that both are present because Habakkuk stands at a pivotal point in the history of salvation. He doesn't know it until God pulls back the curtain and reveals what's about to happen, but he's about to see God devastate the land that he promised Abraham as an inheritance. When he asks the question, how can this be? How will you do this? The answer that God gives later on in chapter 2, is that true righteousness before him is righteousness that is by faith. It becomes even clearer in chapter 2 that God is aware of the wickedness of the instruments he's raising up to bring his justice. He says in verse, chapter 2, verse 4, his soul is puffed up, the soul of the Babylonian. It is not upright within him. God knows about their wickedness. Uh, so in Another contemporary prophet says the same. Jeremiah writes, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things, 
in which there is no profit. God is going to make the nations see that their ways are profitless and worthless apart from him. And he's going, and it says in verse 21, Jeremiah 16, Therefore, behold, I will make them know, this once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. The question then arises, how is God going to do this? God is bringing judgment. God will bring salvation. But how? The Old Testament prophets strained to answer this question. With all the giftings and graces of God given to them, they tried to understand what person or what situation in time it would be that the Spirit of God was saying in them that would bring about Uh, What Peter later says were the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They were striving and straining to understand who would bring the salvation of God. And so too were many Old Testament saints in Hebrews. We read that all of these in Hebrews 11, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us here on this side of Christ, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God was providing the way and revealing to his people in that stage as he is now that his plan of salvation is unfolding and that it's folding according to his timetable exactly. But the great majority of the Jews, when that salvation came in Christ, missed the central truth. We see this play out in the book of Acts. And Paul there preaches a sermon to the Jews in the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia. And he quotes Habakkuk 1. In the context of judgment that he applies not only in Habakkuk's day, but to his day. Paul brings this message. He explains how all of Israel's history was moving toward the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he warns them, after he tells them all of this, he says, to beware that the message of Habakkuk 1.5 come to take place in them. He says, beware lest... Uh, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. That work in Paul's context would have been a work of judgment. If they don't heed this message of salvation, God's judgment will come on them just as it came on God's people in Habakkuk's day. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean as we hear these words and as we hear the message that Habakkuk is speaking and that later Paul then spoke? It means much the same that it meant to them. We need to look, see, wonder at what God is doing as he is building his church and his kingdom in our world and calling men and women to himself in Christ. He who has ears to hear needs to let him hear. And we need to give thanks to God that we, his people, can say along with Habakkuk in verse 12, in response to God's announcement of judgment, we can say back, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. We will live in Christ, and we will live because God will bring salvation for us. Habakkuk goes on, as we'll see next time, that he still doesn't understand how God's going to bring this judgment. So as we sit here in the middle of the prophecy, we are in in an ongoing, evolving conversation, just as we are tonight, and Sunday, about to go back into our week. This is something that we wrestle with God with, uh, understanding his ways and his providence, understanding our place in his history of salvation. But 
we need to call out to him along with Habakkuk, you are my holy one, you are my God. I trust that whatever you are doing in this situation, I don't understand. I will not die, ultimately, because I am in Christ. And if anyone cannot say that, the promise that the righteousness of God comes by faith is available, just as it was in Habakkuk's day, to all who hear Habakkuk's words. Let the one who doesn't know God to be his holy one here with Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Let that one look, if it's you, if you don't know and can't say, O Lord my God, you are my holy one and I am yours by the work of Christ. Look to God. He will provide that righteous standing that he provided through Christ, that he told to Habakkuk and that he has told to us. Let's pray. O Lord, our Holy One, we give you praise and thanks that we have a strong refuge in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that the judgment and salvation that you accomplish at various times and various ways throughout the history of the world is meant ultimately for your glory and for our good, Lord, and that when we don't understand how you are bringing that about in the circumstances around us, We need only call out to you and voice our complaint, our concerns, our confusion to you. And as you answered the prophet Habakkuk, you will answer us as well. Because we have a high priest who is interceding for us, who will bring our request to God. We pray, Lord, that as you promise, the peace of God that passes all understanding will come to us as we do that. We look to you, Lord, to answer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.